Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Premier Scott Moe joins us from Saskatchewan. What's going on in the province of Saskatchewan? Premier, how are you? Thanks for taking the time. Hey, I'm doing well, Roy. I hope you and all your listeners are doing uh, equally as well today. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful day in this country uh, when the rest of the world is facing some significant, really significant challenges. We just spoke with two guests in the last hour who were in uh, in Israel and uh, explained to us the, the the emotions that are raw in Israel. And uh, and then we we look at the demonstrators um, in this country and elsewhere. Who are supporting Hamas, and uh, you know, no, no one's no one's glorifying the death of civilians anywhere. But I can't, for the life of me, Premier, understand how, after what we've seen over the last numbers of days, anybody can get up and uh, and just glorify Hamas. It's it's deplorable. I know you and your province have delivered a hundred thousand dollars to Israel in emergency aid. Could you just speak to what we've seen in the last week? What's your sense? Well, it, it's it's absolutely tragic, and and uh, you're you're absolutely right. In 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 no way, shape, or form should there be any uh, glorifying of any terrorist organization in the world, uh, and, and namely uh, Hamas, who is uh, just underwent unthinkable, an unthinkable, uh, unthinkable actions time and time again uh, in Israel. You're, you're right. We've been uh, as a government, as a province, I would say, very supportive of uh, of, of not only uh, the Israeli uh, community uh, abroad. But the Israeli community that we have uh, here in Saskatchewan and Canada as well, I was at a synagogue uh, the other evening, and what has happened in Israel at the hands of Hamas is very close uh, to our communities and connected uh, to so many people that are living in Saskatchewan. And I would expect, uh, um, you know, just one uh, breath away, cousins, uh, parents, grandparents, uh, friends uh, that are that are in Israel dealing with uh, the, the fallout from this uh, unthinkable, unthinkable act that has been uh, that has been undertaken by this terrorist organization. And so very much, uh, I, I think, is, is part of our, our society, our families, our people uh, here in Saskatchewan and Canada, and we need to support one another, and in particular support our uh, Israeli community uh, here in Canada now. Yes, Premier, I agree with you. Thank you so much for that. Now, we'll, uh, we will uh, be talking tomorrow with uh, your fellow Premier in the West, uh, Premier Danielle Smith joins us from Alberta. Prairie Premiers, you've had your challenges, faced your challenges with the federal government. You've challenged them right on back. And you've been on this program on a number of occasions, challenging Stephen Gilbo, the environment minister federally, to stop interfering in constitutional matters that are really the, the, the affair of the province, and that's the development of natural resources. And now the Supreme Court of Canada, in a 5-2 decision, yesterday said the Impact Assessment Act, Bill C-69, if you will, or the No More Pipelines Bill, as it was dubbed uh, previously, is overstepping the constitutional bounds the federal government has. And yet, Premier, what we're hearing from the Trudeau government is, that's nah, no big deal. It's just a minor adjustment. We'll just write it out and we'll, we'll start, we'll, you know, we'll just make the adjustments. What's your sense? What's your big picture sense here, Premier? 
Well, they'll make the adjustment at their own peril. Uh, this is, I would say again, I said this a few years ago on, on your program, province are, provinces are not subsidiaries of the federal government. Uh, and, and that's what we're seeing uh, the federal government uh, treat provinces like with respect to the jurisdiction that we each have. Uh, the development of our natural resources, the development of how we, uh, how we generate power in our, our respective provinces so that it's affordable and, yes, as clean as, as possible for our residents and industries that are, are creating wealth. That, that's all under the provincial jurisdiction. And what this act has done and many other uh, initiatives of the federal government have done is really try to uh, circumvent uh, the very constitution that, uh, that is, is so important to, to this country uh, and most certainly um, circumvent uh, some of the provincial jurisdiction that that constitution protects. And so we were very pleased uh, with the outcome of, of, uh, of this case, as well as the previous Alberta case. Credit to previous Premier Jason Kenney uh, for bringing that forward. We were quick to intervene. Uh, credit to Daniel Smith uh, for seeing uh, this through, right through to the Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court of Canada. And ultimately, this is a, I would say, a good day for Canadians because it helps us uh, provide that, that energy security from um, through the the exploration, ultimately the development stage of those uh, those investments, um, and ultimately into production. And we must remember, um, when we produce products in in Saskatchewan and Canada, uh, we produce some of the cleanest products that you can find on earth. And so we should be very proud of that. We should look to opportunities to produce more to provide that food and energy security to uh, countries around the world, allied countries around the world. I think is a, a, a significant um, piece of of, of uh, what we should be looking at as a nation. Yeah, I mean, this has been said over and over, and it's been proven over and over. And we've had visits from the Chancellor of Germany, the Prime Minister of Japan, and they wanted to engage in uh, in, in a liquid natural gas export reality from Canada to their countries. And I speculated, and I think you... Uh, you you agreed with that that they uh, they probably would have unwritten the cost of uh, of creating the terminals that were required, but Mr. Trudeau insists there's no business case to be made, and clearly there's more than a business case to be made. There's a massive need in the rest of the world for what Canada can provide, and it would be a tremendous boon to our national treasury in funding our social programs and our health care if those multiples of billions of dollars were to arrive in Canada on an annual basis. I don't know why they don't get it, Premier. Never mind funding uh, some of the very investments that are ensuring that we continue to produce some of the the cleanest products that you can you can find on earth. Uh, listen, this is uh, uh, Bill C sixty nine, the the No More Pipelines Bill, is um, one in a, a multitude of initiatives from this federal government uh, to essentially stymie uh, the development of what are some of the cleanest uh, products in the world. There is no business case for any of that from the federal government, as ultimately the federal government is not in the business of of uh, of doing business. They're in the business of, of regulating that business. And what we, I would say, need to really seriously look at in this country is a process that says that actually walks these industries through um, to a, a, a production possibility. Um, w- w- what Bill C-69 did, what the No More Pipelines Act did, was not only uh, inhibit uh, projects like Energy East, force the government in order to um, ensure that the Trans Mountain Pipeline w- would go forward. They actually had to step up and purchase that to, to, to essentially save uh, their reputation with respect to this very act that has now been deemed unconstitutional. But it also leans into mining development. It leans into other energy investments that are being made, uh, not only in Western Canada, but in, in the uh, Atlantic Canada as well. And it leans 
into uh, how we are generating power for our residents and for our industries that are employing those very residents across Canada. And so it's it's this is this is a good day. It's a good decision. It's the right decision, and we would look forward to a number of additional decisions with respect to the multitude of of initiatives uh, where the federal government is very blatantly uh, uh, attempting to circumvent the constitution to ultimately uh, lean in in provincial areas of jurisdiction, which are. Um, on how to develop uh, the natural resources that we have to the benefit of our residents. Do you think they'll back off now? No, I do not. Um, I, I think they will attempt to uh, to change uh, some of the wording. However, uh, the the decision is quite clear. Uh, there are areas that are, are provincial in jurisdiction, and in many cases, I know in Saskatchewan, we have already taken up that regulatory space even prior to Bill C sixty nine being in place. And that's why we had uh, issues with the, the No More Pipelines Bill. Is is it was actually crossing over into areas where we already had a regulatory process in in place that was working uh, provincially, and. And uh, we most certainly are looking at, you know, how is we can a province uh, ensure, given this ruling, that uh, that the provincial jurisdiction is respected regardless of what the federal government may try to do to circumvent that. So, Premier, your province, and you talked to us this, about this about a month and a half ago, uh, I think we got the first heads up from you that it was going to happen. Saskatchewan is passing... Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Saskatchewan is passing legislation along with the notwithstanding clause in the charter requiring parents be informed of children under 16 who want to change their pronouns and or gender identification at school. And your bill will, um, will make it incumbent, the Parents' Bill of Rights, will make it incumbent on schools to inform parents now, this is a very controversial issue, but Canadians were polled nationally by Leger on this question. You tweeted about it. So, first of all, how controversial is it in Saskatchewan, and how controversial do you perceive your legislation to be nationally? Well, I, th- I think it is raising a, a discussion, and it's, it's an important discussion, and it, it may be should be more of a discussion as opposed to a controversy or referred to as a controversy. Um, but however, there are strong opinions on, on uh, you know, all sides of this, this conversation, and we respect that. But if you just go back through the last number of months and, and look at how this conversation came about, um, the, the current, the, the policy up until the last number of months uh, in the vast majority of, of Saskatchewan schools and school divisions uh, was exactly uh, the policy uh, that we had put forward in, in uh, a couple of months ago that was then put on holds, hold by the court. It was an inclusive policy. All, many of our schools, uh, virtually all of our schools, um, were including the parents at, at whatever level and encouraged to include the parents um, at whatever uh, level they, they felt appropriate. School board were not did not have policies in place that were specifically there um, guiding the or, or telling teachers to exclude the parents in particular um, specifically exclude the parents from information if their child is changing their pronouns changing their name or changing how they they recognize themselves uh, with respect to, to gender um, that changed here over the course of the last few months where we had a, a school division actually change their policy to exclude the parents uh, if that that information should uh, become apparent to the teacher. And that's where this discussion started, and essentially what the policy was that Saskatchewan introduced was the, what the status quo policy has been for many, many years um, throughout schools uh, across the province. Um, 
that policy was put on hold. We had said from uh, the introduction of that policy, should uh, at any point in time that policy not be effective, the government has tools, and we ultimately will use those tools to ensure that we're providing the, the certainty of education policy and parental inclusion in their children's uh, education in school um, at the first opportunity, should that policy not become effective. And that's what happened, and that's why we have responded in the way we did. And so this policy is, is one that has largely been in place for many, many years. Uh, across schools in in Saskatchewan, and it's only when uh, there was uh, some movement in in changing that policy to specifically exclude parents that we um, felt we had to step in and standardize what is uh, going to be the policy across our school divisions in the province. Now, Leger conducted a national poll, and I'm just looking at the headline in the Globe and Mail. More Canadians support using notwithstanding clause in parental rights debates. Poll finds use the notwithstanding clause. You've been accused of bullying your way through the legislation and and harming kids by using the notwithstanding clause, and yet we have more Canadians siding with you. Would you address that, please? Well, I think most Canadians realize that uh, this has been the policy for, for many, many years in, in their community and in their school. And, and that is what we are doing as a government, using the tools that we have available. And in this case, it's required to have legislation with the notwithstanding clause uh, to return uh, to that that very policy of parental inclusion uh, in, in their child's lives. It's, it's, schools and teachers, are, they do excellent, excellent work. But our educators are not parents. Um, they will, as, as, as our previous education minister had said, may stand in the place of parents for uh, a period of time uh, while their children are at school. Um, but they are not parents. Uh, they are not the parents of our children. And ultimately, uh, at the, we want the parents uh, to be informed so that they can be there uh, to support their child uh, through a, what is a very sensitive time, our teenage years potentially. Um, but any of our childhood, uh, our childhood years, I, I think, in fairness, um, our kids need the support of their parents, and the parents aren't able to support if they aren't aware of what is uh, what is going on uh, in their kid's life. And so we uh, most certainly um, have been consistent from from the get-go on, on this policy. The introduction of the policy was to return things to how it has been for many years, and we would use the tools available, if necessary, to ensure we're providing that certainty for Saskatchewan parents, and that is precisely what we're doing now. Just a few seconds, Premier. So you're not in a heavy-handed way pushing the courts out of the picture by uh, including the notwithstanding clause in your legislation. No, uh, what we're doing is is precisely what we uh, said we were going to do is ensure that this policy is in place, providing certainty to not only parents and families, but providing certainty to our to our educators uh, in our schools across the province as well, and returning um, an education policy to to where it was. Uh, largely uh, in our schools and school divisions just a few months ago. I don't like to use the term collateral damage because at the other end of that term there are hurt people, there are wounded people, and there are people who've lost their lives, more accurately had their lives stolen from them. This is a difficult program today because of everything that's gone on in the world over the last well, particularly the last week, and then we look across to Ukraine, and we've been talking about war between Ukraine and Russia since the 22nd of April, February of, uh, of last year. In 2015, 2015, September of 2015, Robert Hall was kidnapped, along with fellow Canadian John Ridsdale, by the Philippine terror group Abu Sayyaf. They were associated 
with ISIS. And uh, Robert Hall was the cousin of my guest now, Gord Bibby, who's been on this program with us on uh, quite a few occasions since 2015, not so much laterally because we try to give the Bibby family an opportunity and the Hall family an opportunity to not be pressed into into interviews, but uh, Gord has always been very agreeable to talk to us, and I appreciate it. Gord, thank you so much for coming on the program, and I, I hope we're not being too intrusive uh, by 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 asking you to do this. Not at all, Roy. It's a pleasure to be with you, and our hearts are certainly out for the uh, for what's going on over in Israel and uh, Ukraine. Yeah. So when you and your family, and we know that Hamas has taken hostages, some of them are, are just little kids. They're infants. God knows what's, what they're doing to them. They killed other ones. When you and your family hear of hostage-taking and know that other families are experiencing being informed by governments that their loved ones are being held hostage, as your family was, Gord, what are your immediate thoughts? Well, it, it brings it all back. I mean, uh, the horror. Uh, it was a gut, gut-wrenching experience. And uh, I just say we just can relate to, to what these poor folks are going through. It's, it's, I, I don't wish that on anybody. So how was your family informed that your cousin Robert Hall had been kidnapped by Abu Sayyaf? Uh, well, uh, the uh, I believe the immediate family, his uh, brother and sisters, were were informed by the uh, by the RCMP, and uh, and that was basically it. They they didn't have much more information uh, as to who exactly was kidnapping or where or or anything else. They a lot of the information was kept from them. And they were told not to discuss it with other family members because it may compromise uh, uh, Bob Bob uh, uh, safety. And so, uh, yeah, so we just sort of were in the dark like mushrooms. So, so the immediate family, brothers and sisters, I just have to repeat this: were told not to discuss it with with you and other family members. You're a cousin. So, so you weren't you weren't supposed to know that it had taken place. That's right. Hard to believe. Well, it it, it is hard to believe. It sh- this this should never happen. And but you also weren't particularly well treated by the federal government of the of the day, which is the same federal government that's in power now. When they when they would would talk to you, they were being dismissive, and you were certainly told never to speak to media. That's right, and. Uh... The uh, Bob and John were actually being held for ransom, uh, so the family was trying to cobble together whatever they could to offer for the ransom, and uh, that was deemed unlawful. <laughs> I remember not. that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, fortunately, I think that uh, that policy has changed. But at the time, uh, we were just hamstrung with uh, with what we could do. And what action we could take, uh, it, it was unbelievable. It really was. You know, Gord, it has to be a great concern about how invested governments are to secure the release of hostages of their own country. Um, and as we know, and as you just mentioned, the, 
uh, release of your cousin, Mr. Ridsdale, that was never secured, while Australia did secure the release of one of its citizens from that same group, and we've spoken with him on air. Uh, but, but Canada would not participate, would not engage in your order not to, uh, not to participate. What's going on in the lives of these families of uh, hostages in Israel now? What do you think? Well, I, I, I don't know what Israel's uh, policy is. I, I, I think they've, uh, I think they take more of a military approach than what, uh, what Canada did. I mean, we were, we were throwing up all kinds of suggestions. Uh, you know, can you not send a, a, a tactical force in to the Philippines into the jungles and and rescue our our, our relatives or what could they do and uh, they basically said no hands off we've got no we have no arrangements with uh, we don't have a stat- status of forces agreement with the Philippines or a visiting forces agreement where we can send people in uh, and then there were I mean the 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 hostage was taking was was public publicly uh, was publicized all over the world so there was a lot of people knew about it and uh the government apparently was uh, approached by some private contractors in the Philippines who uh, whose business is to provide security to uh, to their citizens uh, i believe these were american american contractors and they actually said that they knew where bob and john were being held and uh, that they could uh, with the permission of the Canadian government could go in and uh, effect a, a rescue and the government said no absolutely not we don't want to risk their lives uh, <laughs> so. not as though their lives weren't already at risk and being threatened directly yeah right. yeah and i imagine these uh, these contractors the Amer- these american contractors would have been ex special forces people guys Women. I think you're right. Yes. Yeah. 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 And but uh, wasn't there wasn't there talk as well, Gord, at the time? Because I'm just we're just exploring options here when it comes to hostage taking, and when I, the news seems to suggest, or chronologically, it seems to suggest that when there's a hostage taking that takes place, others follow, if not immediately, but in relatively short order. It's like somebody says, "Oh yeah, we should do that too." particularly if governments don't take action to protect their citizens. Wasn't there talk at the time about military, the U.S. military and perhaps the Philippines, Philippine military being willing to put their special forces units in uniform? Well, they would be in uniform when they went in. But they were prepared to use them to get your cousin and Mr. Ridsdale out. Wasn't there talk about that? There was, and I think eventually there were some... uh, 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 Actions where the Philippine military did go in, and they actually suffered uh, severe losses because the uh, Philippine military wasn't particularly well trained. Uh, they certainly didn't have the expertise of the American contractors who uh, who were well trained, and so it, uh, it, it it was just a botch up. It was Roy. It was just <laughs> uh, it was terrible, and I, I hope that the uh, Israeli families aren't aren't going through what what we go through. I, I hope they're getting more support from their government than uh, than what we did. Yeah, you were told not to talk to anybody. They weren't happy that you were talking to me. That's for oh. sure. Oh. No, it wasn't. And uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, Bonice and I know you had Bonice, uh, Bob's brother, on uh, on your program several times. 
she was she was a pit bull. I call her a pit bull. She just uh, wasn't going to let the government off the hook. So she was uh, uh, very instrumental in in I think affecting some change. Quite frankly. Uh, albeit uh, minor, but there is some change with certainly how the RCMP, who was the main liaison with uh, with the family and uh, and the Philippine government, uh, uh, affect how they treat because they they were in some cases uh, quite that's uh, uh, oh, word I'm looking for. They they were really upset that that. You know, we were taking such a hard line towards this, and we couldn't understand that. This is our relatives. These are people that we love. And how come you're not taking any and all uh, actions to to get their release or to rescue them? uh, Would it be fair to say, and I don't want to turn this into a Trudeau bashing segment, because we're talking about people who lost their loved ones to hostage-taking. But would it be fair to say there was a, an, an air of indifference that permeated this whole issue of securing your cousin's uh, release, Robert Hall's, Bob Hall's release, and Mr. Ridsdale's release? They they just didn't seem to be, if I remember correctly, they just didn't seem to be engaged. I I would agree with that, Roy. Uh, it, it it was probably one of the most frustrating uh, things going on when when we were dealing with this. Is that uh, you know, <laughs> come on, you know, surely you've got some uh, things at your disposal that you can put in place to get Canadian citizens out of the Philippine jungle. But it seemed to be all tied up in uh, politics. I think, in fact, I think. Mr. Trudeau did make a trip to the Philippines, uh, but uh, I don't think there was even any discussion about the hostages. Uh, if there was, I missed it. Yeah, the headlines and, were that he was talking about something entirely different while he was there. Yeah. They, they didn't even come up in yeah. discussion. Yeah. So, I mean, we were, I mean, I was ready to <laughs> don the uh, don the, uh, the military gear on and head over to the the Philippine jungles just to see what I could do. Uh, but of course the government uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't allow, allow me to do that. But uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It really is. And, and you know, you've, you've got so many unknowns uh, with something like this, and I'm sure this is what the, the Israeli families are going through. There's so many unknowns you're worried about the uh, health and well-being of your loved ones, uh, when or even if they will be released, and the feeling of helplessness, which is what I've been talking about. And then, of course, you've got your concern about other family members and how they're coping. Uh, you suffer anxiety over whether government or whatever agency is doing everything they can on your behalf to affect the release. It It really negatively impacts your life. I'm, I'm a different person because of uh, the experience with uh, Boston. Of course, uh, it's no secret, Bob, uh, Bob and John were both executed, uh, beheaded, which uh, again is just un- unthinkable. Yeah, but, yeah um, it totally is. Did, did you have hope uh, Gord, and it would be resolved, and that uh, your cousin Bob and uh, Mr. Ritzdale would 
be returned to Canada safe and sound? Was there hope along the way? And and if there and if it, there was and it disappeared, was there a particular moment, of time, uh, in the whole process where you weren't feeling so good about their prospects? I think as the as the situation progressed, we had less and less hope. Uh, I mean, Bob even uh, they did the Abbotsaf did release some videos of Bob pleading with uh, the Canadian government to to get them out of there, out of there, and uh, and uh, again that didn't seem to we didn't seem to get the reaction from the federal government that we had hoped. So as it went on, we, we figured uh, that uh, this is a hopeless situation, and uh, we were sure that the Abu Suaf were going to going to uh, kill them. Uh, and I didn't, I found out about it, my wife and I were coming back from a wedding uh, in Edmonton, actually, and we were at the uh, ferry terminal in uh, Swasson here. We, we live on Vancouver Island. And it was an all-day drive, all-night drive, so we were kind of worn out. I turned on the radio on the news uh, news channel here, and the first story was the fact that uh, Bob had been killed. So that's that's how I found out about it. Oh, my. Oh, my. Um, yeah. Just thinking what those families are going through in Israel and remembering what you and your family shared with me both on and off the air. And you had an e-petition going on, which didn't really seem to impress the government either. There has to be a concentrated effort. There has to be a concentrated cooperative effort to secure the release of hostages. Uh, the Israelis will do it their way. They'll do it with the military, and um, perhaps they'll be successful. Uh, hostages are in, in just by definition in in. Uh, uh, danger of losing their lives and for the families it's absolute pure hell and i remember speaking with your cousin and and mr hall's sister bonice many times on the air i didn't know she wasn't well at the time and she wasn't and uh, but she was just so determined to secure his release or do whatever she could your family did an amazing job you were just held back by an intransigent government but the whole issue here is caring about the families of the uh, of the hostage hostages taken bob uh, thank you so very much for taking the time to talk i i hope we weren't again i hope we weren't too intrusive not at all Roy. it's uh, i think it's important to keep this story alive and and get the message out i cannot wrap my head around this when innocent civilians are callously murdered I cannot wrap my head around anyone supporting that kind of action. I cannot. And as far as the university students are concerned and their associations who have decided to support Hamas and their brutality, you know, I, I tweeted this yesterday. I was in my late teens, early 20s, when the FLQ terror attack started and took place in the province of Quebec, and I lived in Montreal. and. As far as the students are concerned, I have a message for you. I saw your forebears in the late 60s and early 70s in Montreal, and they were walking around wearing Che Guevara t-shirts. And my view has been 
They couldn't spell Che if we spotted them the C and the H. Come on. Engage your brains. Engage your passion, your compassion, your caring. Let's get started. And joining me from Israel is Lawrence Zeifman. He's a Toronto businessman. And uh, Mr. Zeifman is a chartered professional accountant. He was in Israel on vacation, and he's decided after the Hamas attack to stay in Israel and do what he can. Larry, thank you very much for joining us. Let me just ask you this. How are you today? We're fine. We had a Shabbat is over here in Israel, and uh, we had a quiet Shabbat where we are. But as you can as you can imagine, we've been uh, uh, all traumatized by what's going on. Uh, I was in synagogue today, and um, there are many fathers and brothers of soldiers. Who one one friend of mine, his son, his son said to him, "I hope I see you again." It's uh, we're safe, um, but. Uh, the, the whole country is reeling. Yeah. And when you, when you look at the photographs and look at the images of murdered infants, and you know that infants have been taken hostage, I, I, I can't find the words. This is what I do for a living is talk. Find the appropriate words for the appropriate situation. I can't do that. It's, it's, beyond, it's beyond gruesome. It's beyond anything that you could ever hope to never experience, and yet here it is happening. There really are no words. There's just outrage. That's the only thing we can do. And when you talked before about the demonstrations, that's been so troubling for me as a lifelong Torontonian to see people demonstrating in the streets of Toronto, supporting people who behead babies, behead children, rape women. And these people are demonstrating in the streets of Toronto in support of that. It's uh, it, it, it's shocking. It's beyond shocking. It is beyond shocking. What, what would you say the mood in in Israel is right now compared to when you arrived? Because when you've been there for three weeks, and at the time there was a fair bit of division between right and left in the Israeli political spectrum, I imagine that's not there any longer. I, I know it's not there any longer. What's the mood, though, in, in Israel now? It, it, an unbelievable mood of unity, of determination, of fortitude. Yeah, you're right. The, uh, the um, disunity has disappeared. Um, p- people are determined to win this war, to remain in this land. And to protect their the uh, their fellow citizens, we have heard many times over the last number of days that everyone in Israel has a personal connection to someone who suffered in the attack. Are you finding that to be true? Absolutely. I mean, the numbers are um, are staggering. This is a small country. Uh, there's only eight million people here, and when Thousands of people have been injured, and well over a thousand people have been murdered. Uh, there isn't, it virtually isn't a community in 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 the uh, in the country that hasn't been impacted. Uh, I've been um, uh, I've been to three funerals so far, uh, just people who who were killed nearby, 
uh, one was a, a Canadian. Um, uh, killed. Uh, they lived nearby. They were killed down in Gaza. But one was a Canadian from Vancouver uh, with a family connection to our daughter-in-law. Um, it's uh, yeah. You, this is impacting every Israeli. Every Israeli. There isn't a person in this country who isn't feeling this, who isn't reeling, who isn't personally impacted. Many people probably don't realize that Israel's total population is, as you said, about 8 million. That's less than the province of Ontario. And that's the entire exactly. national population. And the entire national population is now emotionally and, and physically mobilized to go after Hamas. Larry, why did you decide, you were there for three weeks to visit your family. Why did you decide to stay in Israel? Well... We we came to I came to we came to the realization together, my wife and I, that that these are our people. We can't leave. God forbid that we leave and we demoralize people. The most important thing for the people who are not fighting is that they remain strong. My friend, who I mentioned to you as a, a son in an elite unit down in in Gaza, um, uh, who's who said to him, you know, Dad, I hope you see I see you again. He's a the father's a Brit who moved to Israel years ago. His kid was born and raised here. This little kid used to sit next to me in synagogue. Um, and now he's, uh, he's defending the country. So he, he said, he, he, I, I, I couldn't bring myself to, um, to leave my friends and to let them feel that, uh, uh, that, I'm not that I'm running away with my tail between my legs, you know, that I'm running away because I have a Canadian passport and I can get out of here and the Canadian government's letting us out. My my friend said to me, I have to be strong and he's broken. He's he's still suffering from long COVID. He hasn't he hasn't recovered yet. And um, and he said, I have to be strong for my son. The, the people who are on the front lines and defending the country need to know that we're with them. So it just we just realized that we can't demoralize uh, the people by leaving. We need them to know. We need the world to know that the Jewish people stand together, that we don't run away. And in the meantime, we're doing whatever we can. Obviously, it, you know, I'm I'm not putting on a uniform and taking a gun and, and going down there. But we've been doing whatever we can. Um, as I say, I've gone to some funerals. We've been making sandwiches for for, for uh, soldiers. The the mobilization here on the social front. Um, we live in a community that's about forty five minutes from Gaza, but it's on the road there. So there is a um, a station uh, off the highway over here where the soldiers can come and pick up you know, stop and get a snack and get a lunch and, and just feel some connection before and to feel that the people here, the people around the country are with them. And we just wanted to be part of that. We wanted to do whatever we can to help our, our friends and the whole country and our family. We have kids here who live here and grandchildren. And for, I, I couldn't bring myself to leave and leave them here. And they certainly weren't going to leave. I mean, they're, um, our grandchildren here were all born here. Our daughter came here after high school on our encouragement. Um, and um, 
and and never left and uh, came back for her wedding, come back for a couple of family functions, but uh, they're here and they've got six kids. They live in the old city of Jerusalem. And I, I couldn't leave, I couldn't leave them. And I imagine that scenario is being replayed across Israel. Different families, same situation, same decision, not leaving, staying, supporting my family, supporting the country. I imagine that's very, happening. I'm sure you're aware. And very much so. Very much so. I mean, the, the, um, the media likes to, you know, there's a focus on people who were here on vacation or whatever and wanted to get out. But the people I know who have family here are, are doing the same as me. I'm just a regular guy. They're doing the same as me. They're staying. And even many people without family here who got caught here, they're, they're also not leaving and they're doing what they can. And the people who are here are determined to stay and to, you know, I'm not, I'm not judging people who leave, you know, people at different anxiety levels. This can be stressful. Um, and, uh, and if they can't handle it, maybe they're better. It's better for everybody that they go, that they, they go back. But, um, you know, I, I, I like to say I'm a Zionist from birth, and um, this is this is my place. I may physically live in Toronto, but we've been coming here fairly frequently for many years, and um, I, I couldn't see myself leaving when I could do more here than there. And you're aware that you're in a potentially very dangerous situation, clearly. Yeah, but Roy, look what's going on in Toronto. Mm-hmm. The police presence at synagogues, at schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My grandchildren. We've we've grandchildren both in Toronto and and in Israel. And um, our grandchildren in Toronto st- stayed home yesterday because Hamas was threatening them, was threatening the Jewish people around the world. And after the demonstration that we saw in Nathan Phillips Square, I couldn't be. Con- they couldn't be. Con- their parents couldn't be confident that they were safe going to school. So I think the Jewish people are in peril right now. But I have to say that the, the 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 moral support that we've received so far, and I hope it continues, but the moral uh, support that we've seen so far from virtually every civilized country in the world is heartening. The police presence is heartening. Um, I've spoken to a number of politicians um, in Canada that I know, and they've they're they're reaching out and they're supportive and it's very nice. It's very good. It's great. Very much appreciated. I hope it continues because this is going to be a long war and there will be times. And it's going to be a long war against anti-Semitism on a global level because it is increasing around the world. It is a a, tragically Roy. That's it's an unending war. What do they say? Anti-Semitism is the world's oldest hatred. It never ends. And the the fact that we can see it and it's, Raising its head for the last few years, 78 years after the end of the Holocaust, is shocking. It's, it's more than worse than shocking. We have about, uh, Larry, we have maybe uh, two minutes left. I, I thank you so much for coming on, on the air. What do you want to say? What, what do we need to know? So I think that uh, the support has to continue because people need to recognize that Israel can't just ceasefire. We can't go back. We have seen, and I'm no military expert, um, 
we uh, we can't go back to where these people are on Israel's border. So what I would ask the people, the government, um, the governments around the world to do is to understand that Israel has a job to do, the military has a job to do, they have to win this war. Can't go back to having terrorists who would do such things um, in power in Gaza. And we have to trust Israel, our fellow democracy, to do what it needs to do. And we have to respect their, their authority to do what needs to be done um, to make sure that they can protect Israeli citizens and such a thing can never happen again. Larry, thank you so much uh, under these very difficult circumstances for joining us on the air. Uh, I know how you feel about what's going on in Toronto. Clearly, your fellow Torontonians have heard it and has been going on across the country. There'll be more said about that, I'm sure. Stay safe, and um, that's not a throwaway term. I, I hope you stay safe. And again, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Roy. Thank you for caring. Thank you to all, all our friends in Toronto who care, who are concerned. We really appreciate it here. Okay. It's really, really important. Now, Laura Klusterman is the executive director of Badge of Life Canada, which supports and assists police officers living with PTSD trauma. And uh, Laura Klusterman, who's a 32-year Ontario provincial police officer, retired now, uh, executive director, again, of Badge of Life Canada, used uh, the words morally corrupt leadership in an email to me about police leadership and, quote, officers are dying over it. No one seems to care. Now, this all harkens back to Tim Mills being a guest on this program a few weeks ago. Tim Mills is the former RCMP emergency response team, so like the SWAT team, right? Team leader in Nova Scotia in April of 2018, when 22 people, including RCMP Constable I.D. Stevenson, were murdered, and Tim Mills was the officer who found Constable Stevenson. And he was also present in Moncton in 2014 when three RCMP officers were murdered. So I started to hear from police officers across the country saying, yeah, we agree with Tim Mills when he said very challenging things about Canada's police leadership. And Laura Klusterman, Executive Director of Badge of Life Canada, joins us. Laura, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time and thanks for getting in touch. The words toxic police leadership were used. How does that apply? Well, Roy, thank you very much for having me. And absolutely. And I, and I want to extend that it's not just, I mean, the police are feeling it. It's all Canadian public safety personnel. And, and as of as early as like a couple hours ago, we were doing peer support sessions for corrections because they had just had a suicide, a very recent suicide in Ontario. And it's all toxic leadership. And the toxic leadership is literally killing people because we are so, it is so ingrained that, you know, we are paramilitary and we, we have to be staunch and we have to be harsh and, and we're forgetting about we're human beings. Like we have feelings. And if like the leaders are, and I, I, I mean, I use the word leadership very loosely because they're not leaders. They're, they're managers. Leaders lead, managers manage. And right now, we're, the word leadership 
for the most part, and I can say from looking like policing in particular, um, very little, very, very little, because it is, it's a toxic environment. It's a toxic environment. So uh, Tim Mills was telling us the first time we talked that after that uh, night in 2018, when 22 people were murdered, his ERT unit has permanent members, of which he was one, he was a leader, but they also had part-time members, part-time, you know, RCMP officers who had other duties. Their main duties were with other detachments. But at the time of an emergency, when they were called up to join the ERT unit. So he asked the RCMP leadership to give these officers a couple of days to just diffuse from what they'd gone through, which didn't seem like too much of a request, but I guess it was because they denied it. Are you at all surprised? Not surprised at all. Not surprised at all. I mean, we're, we're asking people to go into very serious and, and traumatic situations day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. And then when they ask, and if you have enough courage, if an officer has enough courage to say, I need a minute, that takes a lot of courage, Roy, to, to, for an officer to say that. And then to be turned around and said, no, you can't have it. Do you think they're ever going to ask again? Do you think that, that you know, it's one of these where it builds? And then they think, well, what's wrong with me? Because clearly I, I can't handle stuff. And then it becomes part of, oh, my gosh, and it builds and builds. And I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, I, I've, I've seen it in 32 years. I continue to see it. And one of the most toxic things is when leaders or managers, I'll say, say they're doing a good job. They actually think that when you have, you know, a detachment that has 25, 35% of your people that are off on sick leave, they can actually say to other, other managers, we're doing a good job. And no one, no one questions. No one says, you know, what's, what's going on? What's, why can we not get people to come in to the policing career? Why can we not get anybody to come into corrections or fire or EMS? I mean, it's not because it's not the job. It's not what you see and what you do. It's how you're treated. And everyone knows that. And I dare say I see it day in and day out from people that it's not the traumatic event. It's the way that they were treated afterwards. Give us an example, please. A very small example would be... um, you know, you're, you're, you've finished a notification of a next of kin. So that's when we have to go into someone's house and say that a loved one has died. And that takes its toll because you're watching. When you take on people's, you know, the suffering of other, another human, that takes a toll on your being. And there are big feelings that you have to deal with. And, you, and I mean, you never, know what's, you never know what's in your backpack. If it's something close to home that, you know, you just had a recent death, then you're going to feel that more. So you've done that call, you go back to the office, you have a coffee and a muffin because chances are you haven't eaten all day and you're just sitting there and you're just, you're feeling the feels like you were, you're going, you're processing it. You're allowing your psyche to process and you have your sergeant come in and say, Laura, I need that report and I need it now. So do it. I don't know what you're doing. You're just sitting around here doing nothing, but I need that report now. And all of a sudden, you have not been given license and a safe space to feel it. So then now you're angry. 
Now you're mad. And now you're like, I'll give you that report. And now all of a sudden you've created an environment that's not safe anymore. And that's within your own detachment. And that's where sanctuary trauma comes in. Because now it's not safe in there anymore because people are bullying you. And, and I mean, I dare say that the, the shenanigans of management right now are childlike. They're absolutely childlike. And it's, it becomes a, you know, I'm going to share to compare instead of like share to identify. We're all human beings and we've, and don't do the, oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I've done worse calls because now you've just demoralized someone and, and it's, and they're, they're going to feel that. And that's toxic. Yeah. There are people who are listening to this program right now across this country who are startled by what you're telling us, startled Uh, because they, they, well, then probably never heard anything like this unless they heard Tim Mills on the program a few weeks ago and and previously. But they're startled because they believe that, you know, policing has has the kind of leadership that respects and supports the officers um, who are out in the field. Has it been? How long has this been going on, Laura? Is this a is this a fairly recent development, or has it been going on for some period of time? Absolutely not. It's been going. It's been going on since I started. I mean, and that's. I think that that's what I find is so disheartening. Is we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and expect a different result. And Roy, you and I both know what that definition is. And then when you when you couple that with, you know, out in the open that we're doing a great job that, you know, we look after our people and we have these units that are looking after the people, then the people that are actually being affected by this, that are on the road, that are like feeling the neglect of, of proper leadership, that adds again to their stress. So, I mean, I, I wish I could say that, you know, we are we are getting better. Um. We're getting better so slowly that um, it's it doesn't even register on the radar. So you you wrote to me. Officers are dying over what they're experiencing on the job. Yes, the, they can't they can't take it anymore. They can't take the lack of leadership. They can't take the being told that everything is great and just go out and do your job and and suck it up. And that they're just they can't they can't take demoralization the the sanctuary trauma the moral injury of what what is going on with them day after day. You know I've uh, I've mentioned this a couple of times and recently, and I think I did before we spoke with uh, Tim Mills. I uh, I was doing some programming, Laura, on PTSD among first responders. One of the um, first responders who spoke with us was a sergeant in the Toronto Police Service. And he said he was being made fun of. He'd been in the uh, police service for a long time. But he was being made fun of because of his PTSD by his superiors and by some of his fellow officers. And we had him on a few times. And then there was the, the wife of a paramedic in Calgary. And she said that her husband was so struck by post-traumatic stress disorder from the job and the way he was treated, I suppose I should reverse that, from the way he was treated and the job, then I get this. She 
actually had him sign a daily, what effectively was a contract, to not take his own life while she was on the job. She was a nurse. So she had his her husband sign effectively a contract each and every day she went to work that he would not commit suicide while she was gone. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's stunning. It's frightening. It's shocking. And until we expose the ugliness for what it is, it is never going to change. We are never going to change. We can think that we are, you know, creating new culture and we, you know, we, we can, we can say, we can talk about mental, mental health and, and mental wellness. And uh, that's all we're doing is we're just talking about it. We're not taking action. And anybody that says that I am incorrect, then I can show them because we do a weekly peer support and it's weekly from, for people all across Canada, from public safety personnel, and every one of them, 35, 45 people a week are affected by the way that they are treated. And it's not necessarily just the trauma that they've encountered. It's the way that they're treated. It's the reintegration. I did a, um, a, a speech, a presentation about how do we reintegrate uh, public safety personnel once they've been off. So you go off and you know, for police, you lose your use of force and then we have to reintegrate you. And I started with, you can't reintegrate into any kind of public safety personnel organization with toxic leadership. You're setting everyone up for failure. And Roy, I was brushed off. They were like, well, what about the reintegration? No, no. You have to deal with the toxic leadership before you change anything. And how does that happen? You have to look and go, you know what? What am I doing? How am I treating my people? And, And ask. don't ask someone that's going to say to you, oh, you're doing a great job. You know, because they want the promotion. Ask, actually ask someone and listen to the truth. And I mean, I, I've said it before. There's a reason I retired as a constable because I would not, I would not play the game and I would not, I have more integrity and um, I can look at myself in the mirror after 32 years because I didn't sell my soul. And I was not about to harm any human being because I wanted to be promoted and, and mental health like was very prevalent in my entire career. RCMP officers sent an email after I spoke with Tim. And uh, he wrote effectively about what you just said was going on. He subscribed, underscored, endorsed everything that Tim said, and I'm sure would do the same after hearing you, Laura. And then he wrote, and now I wear a white shirt, and I have 200 people working for me, and I'm worried about them. Yes, because he's one person. Laura, how would uh, first responders uh, contact you? What's the best way? So uh, in our website is bolc.ca or badgeoflifecanada.org. Um, or they can email me. It's Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at badgeoflifecanada.org. So Laura at badgeoflifecanada.org. And what are the websites again? Is bolc.ca. Bolc.ca. That's the, that's the easiest one. Okay. Um, can you, in about 45 seconds, tell us what's going to happen as far as the Ombudsman's report is concerned? That was supposed to be... Released, reported, acted on? 
The one from 2018? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'm doing some a deep dive into it, actually, because I'm very curious as to see actually what's been done and whether they're... Uh, whether the recommendations have, have actually gone through or whether there's just been a whole lot of lip service go, that, that has been done for them. Well, clearly you, uh, you care deeply about uh, the first responders, the emergency personnel. You were one for 32 years. Thank you so much for your service and for, for what you're doing at Imagine Life Canada. Thank you, Laura. Thank you very much, Roy. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.